Hi, my name is Maria, and I'm a very grateful member of Al-Anon. And, uh, yeah, because I was the one walking down the thing like this. <laughs> I want to thank uh, Mary for picking me up from the airport, for throwing her daughter out of her bed into the street so that I could spend the night in her room, for... Um, just being an, an all-around wonderful hostess and, uh, and a new friend. And I want to thank Pat for asking me to come here. Where are you, Pat? Oh, there you are. Um, Pat called me. He must have called me 15 times. I was just um, trying to get the plane reservations. And then after September 11th, I thought, well, I'll get, good, you know, I'll get a good price range now. And it wasn't. It was even more expensive. And so then he called back after the first of the year and on and on and on. And I just thought, wow, this guy's really dedicated. And I appreciate it. And he confused me because he said, Will you come to speak at the Miami Valley Winter Conference in Ohio? And I was thinking, is it Miami? Is it Ohio? Is it, is it a valley or is it flat? Is it winter or is it hot in Miami? I was. And then he's like, and it's a conference, but it's just one day. So I was really thrown. But. Um, I knew if I showed up, I would be taken care of, and I have been. And I also want to thank Beth for being here because she said, don't forget to mention the taper. And I've known Beth for a while, and she does a wonderful job, and she's a great emailer. So thank you, Beth. And um, make sure you buy her tapes because, um, you know, these tapers, they do. They work very hard, and they come, and they load in all their equipment and all of that stuff. So it's a way to, to help them be self-supporting as well. Um, and thanks, Judy, because I know that she had something to do with this. Uh, it's a real honor to be here. It's an honor to be here with all these other speakers. The people you're going to hear today are completely awesome. And um, I'm just the warm-up to kind of help you wake up while you have your coffee and really have to go to the bathroom. And um, I came into Al-Anon uh, the 13th of April, 1985, and uh, God saved my life that day, literally. And um, I hope I stay eternally grateful. My home group is the Stepped Up Group in L.A. in Westchester, California. We're by the airport. Um, so if you're ever traveling through and you're by the airport on a Thursday night at 8 o'clock, we're, we're right by the airport. And um, I have a sponsor, and I sponsor, and I reach out to newcomers when they come in the meetings, and uh, I look for newcomers, and I work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous as suggested um, in our traditions. It says we, work, we, we practice a program by working the 12 steps of AA ourselves, and uh, that's what I do. And I work the 12 steps of AA out of the... Uh, Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the AA 12 and 12, as well as um, our Al-Anon literature. And I love our Al-Anon literature, and I love the AA literature, and uh, that's where my program comes from. And I'm so grateful that I've had um, sponsorship lines that have taught me that. Um, I was not um, a toast-burning Al-Anon, as to kind of parallel the AA stories. Um, I um, hit bottom really hard and really fast and got in here at the age of 23 and stayed. I had purple hair and a concave belly and a belly chain and wore oversized boxer shorts down to, you know, my hip bones and um, little um, uh, corset tops and um, I was a little hot number and um, <laughs> and uh, at least I thought so and that's all that really mattered to me. <laughs> As long as I thought so, and the one guy who didn't think so thought so, I was okay. And um, I grew up um, in a in a in an affluent family. Um, I didn't want for anything materially. I had a lot of drinking in my family. The family was um, designed around the bar. Everything was designed around the bar: the talking, the hanging out. When my parents um, bought their new house when I was six years old, the home that I grew up in. Um, the first thing they did was they built this huge bar. They went and they got all this oak, and they had a guy come in and build this huge bar. And it had, um, then they went to Europe, and they bought a genuine pub mirror to go behind the bar. And um, I've heard, you know, now I've heard in open AA meetings how alcoholics always like to drink in front of mirrors because they like to watch themselves drink. And... Um, but I, we just had this genuine pub in our house. Um, there was beer on tap. Um, my parents, one of their second businesses um, that they kind of just fell into was um, a wine and beer distributorship. So everybody salivates. All the alcoholics go, mmm. <laughs> and um, 
So every week, the guy would show up with a dolly and kegs of beer, fresh, uh, to put on tap, and then they'd dump out the old ones, and cases of vodka and scotch and beer and wine and champagne and anything you wanted. And it was, um, <laughs> Dave just like, oh, <laughs> boy, that sounds like a good delivery man. <laughs> Forget about the pizza guy. I want him to deliver to my house. And um, it was, um, and but there was never any, you know, there wasn't gunfire in the living room or picking up people that had passed out. I think the most dramatically alcoholic thing that ever happened was one time somebody left like this thing that I thought was a dead animal in the living room, and it turned out to be his toupee. <laughs> and other than that, drinking was just very social. It was They had a lot of parties. They had a lot of people over, and I was the bartender, and I knew how to pour a glass of beer so that it didn't get too much foam on the top, and I could make my mom's martinis at cocktail time, and I loved being the bartender, and I loved being the center of everybody while they all sat around and talked and laughed, and I made the drinks. And... and uh, it felt it felt really good, and as I said, I didn't come into this program trying to control somebody else's drinking. I just tried to control everything else that he did, but I didn't um, I didn't know anything about controlling drinking until I came here and learned all the secrets. So if I ever go back out there, believe me, I'm checking the toilet tanks for bottles, I'm checking the trunk, I'm checking everything because I learned it all here. But um, anyway, I was uh, I grew up in the world of Nancy Drew. I love to read, and um, I uh, I wanted to be a detective. And um, or an Al-Anon, you know, I didn't know that at the time, but it's kind of the same thing. I thought I wanted to be a detective. <laughs> I found my calling here. I found my purpose. And um, I used to, um, we have a street called Santa Monica Boulevard, and there's a, a, a walking path down Santa Monica Boulevard with a bunch of trees lining the, the, the uh, path. And so I would walk behind the trees and I would write down everything that everybody said because I was sure that I was going to find somebody doing something suspicious and um, I would go to the stores and you know spy on people and check for shoplifters and uh, um, I just was always looking for something dramatic and exciting and in the end of it and in the end of those fantasies I was always going to be the hero and I was always going to rescue them or I was always going to be the one that told and um, and um, even early into the program, I mean, late into the program, for years into the program, when I would put myself to sleep with fantasies of, like, you know, the, the woman's going to walk across the street and I'm going to push her out of the way in front of the truck or I'm going to run into the burning building and save the children and all that stuff, whenever I put myself to sleep with those kinds of fantasies, I knew that I was really into low self-worth and that, you know, I was uh, feeling really bad about myself because one more time, that was one of my isms when I got here and still can be, is that I don't know my place. And I have found a proper place here in this program to just be one among many. But when I came in here, I always had to be better than or less than. And because I felt so less than everybody, I had to always have these hero fantasies to make myself feel better about myself. And um, I, uh, I'm going to skip over my, you know what, I never even found out how long I'm supposed to talk. So, and I have no watch. So can somebody tell me? Okay. Okay. Do you want to give me a watch? Thanks. Or do you want to just tell me? <laughs> okay. Just get up and walk out. Yeah, that's good. Okay. So, um, anyway, I forgot where I was. Todd, it's all your fault. Um. Anyway, um, one of the things I want to talk about with my childhood is I had a, a, this thing was born when I was about seven and a half, and it was my little sister. And I had been an only child for seven and a half years, and suddenly this competition came into my life, and that's another one of my isms um, is competition, competition, jealousy, and envy. And I did not have, although I always searched for God from the time I was little, I went to church by myself. Um, from the time I was like six and a half or seven years old, my mom would drop me off at Sunday school every every week by myself. Um, and I loved it. I wanted to go. Um, although I always searched for God and I believed in God and I had faith in God, I never really had trust in God. And because I had no trust in God and his abundance and his abundant love and all of that stuff, my life has always been filled with that kind of competition that there's only so much love to go around. <laughs> 
or there's only so much attention to go around. And therefore, since this thing was born into my family, she is going to somehow take away some of my parents' love. And so I got very competitive with her. My first competition was my mom, and I competed with her, my first female competition. She, I competed with her for my dad's affection from a very young age. And um, my dad used to work a lot, and he used to work very long hours, and uh, I would, he would come home from work, and I knew I only had that 15-minute window before I had to go to sleep. And um, so I would see my dad, and we'd sit at the table, and um, I would try to get his attention. And if I couldn't get his attention... Um, sometimes he'd be having steak. This was back in the days where steak was like a treat, you know, and um, like red meat was a good thing, you know. And um, and so we would all have chicken, and then my dad would come home, and he would get the steak. And so I would crawl on my hands and knees over to my dad's side of the bed, I mean to the, my dad's side of the table, and I would sit up on my um, hind legs like I was a dog, and I would hold up my little paws, you know, and I would stick out my tongue and pant for a piece of steak. And my dad would pat me on the head and he'd give me a piece of steak. And sometimes he would, you know, pull me up on his lap or pay attention to me. And that is a pattern that I repeated for the rest of my life, always wanting that little piece of steak. I just want a little bit of attention. If you just give me a little bit of attention, I'm going to be okay. And I will always settle for crumbs. And uh, what I didn't know, though, it's like Chuck Chamberlain talked about when he used to sit in his chair and look out over the ocean toward Catalina Island from Laguna, and he'd say, if that ocean were alcohol, it would still never be enough, was if I had that little bit of attention and if I had that little bit of affection, it still wasn't going to be enough. And I was going to pursue that to get another piece and another piece and another piece to the gates of insanity or death. And that's really basically my story, is I will use, I will pursue anything on the outside to make me feel better on the inside when I have a godless soul. If I am not in touch with my higher power, if I don't have that 24-hour reprieve that they talk about, I will pursue anything, money, property, prestige, but especially a man who has, wants to have nothing to do with me <laughs> so that I can fill up those insides. And, um, and that's the chase, and that's the torque, and that's the excitement, because if he's chasing the bottle... I can chase him. I don't want to chase somebody who actually stops. I might smash into them and get too close. So they were always chasing the bottle, and I was always chasing them. And every time they felt that sense of ease and comfort that came at once from taking that first drink, and they felt courage, and they felt like they could walk into any restaurant, and they felt like they could go into a group of people and feel, okay. I felt that way when I was on his arm and he walked into that restaurant and I got to walk in with him and I had my drink of choice that I was holding on to and I could go, I feel okay. Every time he said, I love you, I love you so much, honey, sometimes I can't even see. I would, I would just think, oh, this is it. I have found nirvana. This is the purpose of my life, you know. And then he'd change the subject and go on to something else. And it was not enough. It was not enough. Because that substance, that's just one drink for me. And my pattern throughout my life, starting from when I was 19 years old and I met this sober alcoholic, uh, I met him in a bar and I picked him up and um, I asked him if I could buy him a drink and he said no, he didn't drink. And I asked him if he did drugs and he said no. And I was wondering, because he was all white-faced, and he had red around his eyes, and his eyes were kind of yellow and lolling back in his head, and he was playing the piano. He's a keyboard player, and he was just kind of a white, you know, Ray Charles. And, <laughs> and I thought, what's wrong with this guy? I thought he was loaded, you know? And so there was something wrong with him, the fact that he wasn't loaded. And um, <laughs> uh, I set my standards high. And, um, and he said... Um, I just smashed my truck into the front of the Bank of America on Lancashire 25 days ago. And I went into AA because I was afraid the cops were going to find me. And um, so I've been 25 days sober. So the light bulb went off in my head, and I thought, he doesn't have a car. He needs a ride home. He needs me. <laughs> so um, he became my three-and-a-half-year one-night stand. And um, <laughs> I went to AA meetings with him probably five times a week. And uh, I went to this group called Radford where Shirali used to go and um, Alabama, Car Alabama Carruthers. And, um, and, uh, and it was awesome. And I would sit in that meeting and I would just cry when the alcoholics took their cakes and their families were there. And, you know, they'd have these reunited relationships and reunited families. And, 
you know, hear these incredibly inspirational speakers. And, you know, now I had to be there because I was sure that braless women are going, were going to come and sit on my boyfriend's lap. I don't know where I got that image, but I was sure that at all the AA meetings, braless women go up to the men and sit on their laps. <laughs> And so, <laughs> Pat says not all meetings. <laughs> That's only at the, the braless women Friday night stag. And um, <laughs> so, anyway, but I was hearing all these things, and I would cry, and I would laugh, and I just loved the alcoholics, and I loved the meetings, and I just loved being there. And then I would go home, and I would yell at him, and I would scream at him, and why don't you love me the way I want you to love me, and why don't you treat me the way they treat each other families, and why don't you, and you, and you, and you, and I'd point that finger at him, and it's all your fault, and I'm so unhappy, and you're possessed, and you're this, and you're that, and, you know, I would, I would ration his coffee, and I would ration his chocolate. He was mother sent him chocolate chip cookies from Oklahoma, and I hid them and rationed them out to him. <laughs> Nothing wrong with this picture. And he would say, you need to go to Al-Anon. <laughs> and I just looked at him and I said, look, you are the alcoholic. You are the sick one. I go to a psychiatrist and I pay $60 a week and you only put a dollar in the basket. <laughs> and I have no idea why that made such sense to me at the time. <laughs> So the thing about an Al-Anon of my type is uh, I do go to the gates of insanity or death, and any morals that I had and any standards that I had and any ways that I was raised um, to, do, to take the actions of a lady quickly went off the window because if I'm not getting that validation and I'm not getting that drink of choice to make me feel okay about myself, I go elsewhere. Just like if an alcoholic's drink of choice is vodka but there's only scotch in the house, they're not going to say, oh, no, thanks. I'll wait. I'll just go to the liquor store tomorrow. Don't worry about it. No, that scotch is going to be gone. And uh, unfortunately, um, I went and I, and I pursued other attention and other validation, including um, uh, married men and including my boss's boss and including um, jeopardizing my career and uh, really hurting my boss later, years later, when he found out. And uh, I got to make amends to him. And uh, uh, it, was, it was not pretty. And as a result of taking those actions and as a result of always having to meet and act and talk, with you know, with my mouth and and the things that I said and did, um, I wound up uh, getting pregnant quite a few times, terminating those pregnancies, um, doing things that I'm ashamed of today. Um, also, as a result of that, I wound up putting myself in situations where um, I was raped. Um, I was almost gang raped. I've been chased by a gang down the street in a bad part of town because I was there with a man because I needed validation and. Uh, and I was willing to go to any lengths to get that validation. I was willing to go to any lengths to have somebody say, you're pretty, or you're sexy, or I want you, or I love you. And I didn't even care if they were telling me the truth. And, but unfortunately, again, when they said it, it still wasn't enough, and I had to go get more and more and more. And uh, so I was not a lady when I got to this program. My AA women friends always tell me if I had just stayed at the bar and drank longer, I would have gotten into less trouble. Unfortunately, I was leaving with people, and uh, that got me in a lot of trouble. So, um, anyway, um, at the end of that particular relationship, I had done all those things. I was in denial that I had been raped. I was very emotionally affected by it and didn't know it. I was really in a deep depression. I couldn't leave the house. I'd quit my job. Uh, I only went out at night. Um, I barely brushed my teeth. I didn't wash my face. I didn't shower. I didn't change my sheets. Um, I'm sure I stunk. Um, and uh, my parents didn't even want to talk to me. My parents tried to fix anybody at any time, and even they were saying, you're too depressed to talk to. Um, and meanwhile, I was still pointing the finger at everybody else because don't you know it's still everybody else's fault. If only he had loved me the way I wanted him to love me and if only they had done what I wanted them to do and if only my parents had been better parents and all of that stuff. I had a very twisted idea of who my parents were and what my childhood was when I got here. And I'm so grateful today that I am, have so many things to be grateful for in my childhood. I really am so blessed. And, um, but I had one of my other isms is the need to be a victim. And so I will always set myself up in relationships and in jobs and in any contact with anyone that I'm the victim. Oh, this, this, this shows you how, what a slow learner I am. 
Yesterday I'm on the plane coming from Dallas to here. And I was in seat 7D, so I thought. And which was on the aisle on the right-hand side when you come on the plane. So I'm sitting there minding my own beeswax and this woman comes on the plane and she says, oh, I'm sorry, you're in my seat. And I said, oh, is this 7D? And she says, no, 7D is right there. It was right across the aisle, right? And she could have easily sat there, but she wanted me to move. So I thought, well, it's her seat, so I'll move. So I moved right across the aisle and she said, oh, I didn't realize that you were sitting across the aisle. And I started, I, I said, yeah, I was kind of wondering. And then I just kind of cut it off mid-sentence and I didn't say anything else. But I sat there. Now, this is, this is, I'm going to be 17 in April, and I just got yesterday, resentment is like battery acid, it destroys the container from the inside. I sat there, and this was my best thinking. I thought, you know, that seat in front of her has about two inches more space than the seat in front of me, and I'm at least six inches taller than her. And I just hope that the guy in front of me slams his seat down really hard and smashes my kneecap so I can scream out loud, that'll show her. <laughs> that is the story of my life. If I hurt bad enough and scream bad enough, boy, that'll really show you. You know, poor me. Now, meanwhile, this lady's reading her book. She's laughing. She's, you know, she's enjoying the flight. And I'm sitting there going, I'm going to get you. <laughs> Luckily, after 15 minutes, I got bored with that. So I moved on. But that's my best thinking. Um, but that was really my whole life is let me set myself up. And in any situation, even if it was at work, I always had to do the gossip thing where I would talk about somebody else to somebody else, and they would be the bad guy. And then the next week, it would be that person's turn to be the bad guy, and I'd have to talk to somebody else about them. I know none of you guys do that. And, uh, and that was my need to be a victim. And another one of my isms that goes hand in hand with that, actually a couple of them, are immaturity, because I'm totally unwilling to look at my part in things and take mature responsibility, irresponsibility, and the need to blame. And those little girls, those little defects, just run hand in hand, skipping down the street all the time. They're best friends. Need to be a victim, immaturity, need to blame, and irresponsibility. And, uh, and that really ran my whole life. And my defects of character were my higher power. And uh, today, if I turn my will and my life over the care of my defects and take bad actions and don't choose to take right actions no matter how I'm feeling, my defects of character are still my higher power. And, um, and I, most of the time, I choose not to take bad actions today. Most of the time I choose to, to say to myself that my standard for if I'm going to take bad actions is uh, if I were to see this person at a meeting tonight, would they walk out and say, I don't want to be any part of that fellowship because that woman is here? Or would I feel embarrassed or humiliated? And that's how I keep my patients when I'm in Kinko's or, you know, the bank when, you know, 15 people are behind the counter chatting and there's only one window open and there's a line of 35 people, you know. That's the kind of thing that just gets me. And because um, if they would just do it my way, we would all be fine. And um, so anyway, I hit a really bad bottom and I broke up with that man and I broke up with the married man and I broke up with the, you know, the team. And um, <laughs> and I quit my job and I hit bottom and I was in bed and um, and I did not get out of bed for months. And finally, one day I was going to kill myself. Now, I didn't remember at the time till three and a half years in the program that I had already overdosed once in high school. I had gotten a hold of my dad's Valium, and I had, I had taken the whole container, and by the grace of God, woke up on the floor next to my vomit and didn't asphyxiate on my vomit, because I've heard of people dying that way. Um, and uh, I didn't remember that till years into the program. And it wasn't one of those I'll show them things. It was just, I don't want to feel this way anymore, and I don't know what's wrong, and I'm tired, and I just want to go to sleep forever. That was the emotion I was feeling when I took those pills. I just wanted to go to sleep forever so I didn't have to feel this stuff anymore. And uh, so I was feeling my ribs for where I was going to stick the knife, and I was actually just on my way to the kitchen because I thought, you know, you hear about, you know, when you slit your wrist, do you do it this way, do you do it this way, do you do it in the tub, then you're naked, then you're covered with blood, and it's just, you know, it's icky. And so I thought, if I just do it in my heart, you know, I can really get it once and for all. And so 
I was feeling my ribs for where I was going to stick the knife, and the phone rang. And I had stopped answering the phone a long time before, and I don't know why I answered the phone that day other than to postpone sticking a knife in my chest. And um, that'll do it. Oh, phone's ringing. Got to go. <laughs> Put down the weapon. Pick up the phone. And um, so um, I... Um, a friend of mine called me, and she had been dating a guy in the same band that I had been dating who was trying to get sober via the value method. And um, so he was a little crisp and difficult to get along with. And um, she said to me, I'm going to kill myself. I need you to drive me to a mental institution. <laughs> that never would have dawned on me. <laughs> Will you be my sponsor? Um, <laughs> and this is the moment, and it still just gets me all, I just got goosebumps, because this is the moment that I see over and over and over again when I work with newcomers, that I see the way you guys treat me, that I see the way I look at you when you say, I screwed up, or I did this, or I did that, where I see God in you, is how God demonstrated his total undying love and affection for me. I had no assets left. I had no hope left. I had no taking right actions. I had no nothing. I was empty. I was godless. My whole life was designed around if I can get the alcoholic to do and say and feel what I want him to do and say and feel. I will put electrodes in his brain. I will totally control him. I will hypnotize him. I will lock him in a room. I will handcuff him to a cement wall to make him love me the way I want him to love me because don't you understand that way I will be okay. Which, you know, I don't have to tell you I'm single. So... <laughs> That was my life. I turned away from God. He did not turn away from me. That was my life. I took the life, the talents, the, the intelligence, everything that he gave me, and I threw it away and said, no, I'm going to waste my life one day at a time, die a slow death, focusing on another human being to make me feel okay about myself. And I'm going to choose that every day, one day at a time, until the day I die. And God took that empty soul, and instead of having any defects, any assets to work with, because if somebody had called and said, you know what, honey, I understand you're going through a tough time. Let me take you to an Al-Anon meeting. I would have said, no way. I don't need Al-Anon. I would have been sharpening the knife. No way. I'm fine. Thank you very much. He used my defects. And that's what God does in this program. He loves me for what I can't do, not for what I can do. He loves me for the times that I fail, not for the times that I'm just Miss Wonderful. He loves me for all of those times, and he gives me the power to carry out his will, even though I'm powerless. And that is such an amazing gift. And that woman told me she was going to kill herself, and God took my pride and my ego and my self-righteousness and all my other isms that I had running at that time, and I said to her, with all of the self-righteousness I possibly could and my little know-it-all Al-Anon, pre-Al-Anon attitude, you don't need a mental institution. You need to go to Al-Anon. I will call and we'll go to a meeting. And that's how I got here. That is the grace of God. That is the grace of God working through a really ugly channel, you know? And... uh and I got to Al-Anon, and I loved it. I loved it. And that was the 13th of April, 1985. I absolutely loved it. And um, I, they had a, I don't even remember what the topic of the first meeting was. I think it must have been the third step, because everybody was talking about God's will, you know, and all that stuff. And at the end, they said that we have open sharing now for any of the newcomers, if you have any questions or comments. And, you know, Miss Self-Righteous, know it all. I'm like, ah, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, me, I do, you know. I was going to show them, you know, my intellect. And um, I said, you know, you guys are talking about God's will this and God's will that. And if it's God's will to have you, for you to have a good day, you have a good day. And if it's God's will, you know, if you're not in God's will, you have a bad day. What if it's God's will for you to have a bad day? What if you're supposed to walk down the street 
and trip on the sidewalk because the next time you go down that sidewalk, you're supposed to know and you'll be aware of where you tripped. And they said, thank you, keep coming back. (laughs) And I really thought I stumped them. I really did. I sat there just gloating. I just was so proud of myself. And this little old lady, she's 72 years old, she became my first sponsor. She came up to me. She looked up at me and she goes, you know what, honey? This is after the meeting. It may be God's will that you stub your toe, but it's your will as to how long you feel the pain. And I thought, wow. That is so profound. And I had absolutely no idea what she meant. But I knew that it was deep. And so she was therefore deep enough to be my sponsor. And you know, she told me the first year, read the first three steps, read the first three steps, and if you get bored, read the first three traditions. And I was like, yeah, but he, yeah, but he, yeah, but he, yeah, but he, he did this, he did that, because I tried to get back with the alcoholic and all that stuff for a while. And um, it's not going to burn me this time. Here's how. And um, yabbity, 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 yabbity. You know, that's all, folks. It was just yabbity, 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 yabbity all the time. And finally, one day, it was probably about 10 months in the program, we were walking to this coffee shop for fellowship after the meeting, and she spun on her little heel, and she looked at me, and there was a, a newspaper stand. And she said, look, I want you to imagine a piece of paper, and I want you to make lines on that piece of paper and make columns. The first column, it says Rick's responsibilities. The second column, it says Maria's responsibilities. The third column, it says God's responsibilities. Stay in your own column. That's all I got out of my first year. That's all I got. That's what a slow learner I am. And... um, Anyway, I, I got another sponsor, and I wound up um, working the steps and uh, all the way through um, the, the first time with her, and, and um, I was just on this journey to, to happy destiny, and um, I met a man in the program, and he had about eight years more time than me in the fellowship, and he was, he was um, we were going to trudge the road together, and, you know, um, I just thought it was going to be the right and perfect relationship, and, you know, your first love and program is really hard to get over, you know. Even if you only date them for a week, it takes, what, three years to get over it? And um, we dated for three and a half years and um, with a little six-month hiatus in between. And um, so uh, I got to really see myself in that relationship for the first time because I was just conscious enough. Again, I'm a very slow learner, and I was so numb and so out there and in so much denial about my part in things for my first few years in program I was just thawing. I had taken all of my, every emotion and every feeling that I had ever had and stuffed it way down inside. And I just became this quiet, sullen kind of person that absorbed it all. And when I came in the program, I mean, I literally cried at 11 meetings a week for, for my first 90 days. And I went to 11 meetings a week for quite a few, quite a few years. And then, you know, seven and eight meetings a week. I was, I, I couldn't work. I was desperate. I was suicidal. I'd hang out in the Alano clubs and just hold myself and rock because I, I felt like my emotions were finally thawing and it was finally, I was finally feeling and seeing life as it really was and it wasn't all their fault. And there was a certain grieving that went on with that because I had really convinced myself that my thinking, it's such a disease of perception that I had really believed my own press. And, and it was hard to look at how, how ugly and mean and vengeful and um, irresponsible and all those things I really was. And uh, so... We were going through some problems in the relationship, and because um, I was in it, and we, um, I went through a period of time where, in the relationship, um, I want to cut to the chase, so that's why I'm hesitating. I'm not trying to avoid saying something. I, um, let me just say, at the last year of the relationship. The whole time I was saying, he had called me and said, I really, I really do love you and I really want to make this work and can I come back and let's try it again and all this stuff. And so I was trying the relationship one more time. And I was saying to my friend Vinoy, you know, should I stay or should I go? You know, we went on this trip. He didn't talk to me for nine days straight. You know, he literally did not say a word to me for nine days. 
He doesn't talk to me. I, I feel like I don't know what's going on. Should I stay or should I go? Should I stay or should I go? I know I'm supposed to learn that acceptance is the answer to all my problems. I'm supposed to, you know, put down the magnifying glass, pick up the mirror. I had the slogans. I had the inventories. I was praying about it. I was doing all this stuff, and I kept asking for the answer. Should I stay or should I go? Because the only thing you get from sitting on the fence you know, is a sharp stick in your bum, you know, and I was sitting on the fence all the time, you know, should I stay, should I go, should I stay, should I go, and she kept saying to me, but what is it within you, but what is it within you, but what is it within you, and I couldn't get it, and I didn't hear it, and I didn't understand what she meant, and one day it dawned on me that I cannot blame somebody for being unwilling to make a commitment or being incapable of handling any sort of intimacy in a relationship if I'm the one that has one foot out the door all the time with my fear of commitment and my inability to handle intimacy in a relationship, saying things like, if he doesn't change by tomorrow, I'm out of here. If he, if this doesn't change, if he doesn't, you know, this doesn't happen, if that doesn't happen, if he doesn't prove that he loves me, I'm always into that, I'm going to make you prove it thing, um, then I have one foot out the door all the time. And water seeks its own level. I learned something just like six months ago. Again, the slow learner. Did you know, this totally floored me. Did you know that people who can handle intimacy and commitment don't stay in relationships with people who can't handle intimacy and commitment? (laughs) I didn't know that. It was like, wow, that is such a concept. You mean there's normal people out there that go you know what, I don't think this guy's ready for a relationship, but it was nice to meet you and have a good life and take care, and they walk away. That would never dawn on me. would never dawn on me. I'm going to grab you around the throat and pummel you into the ground until you decide you love me, damn it. This never dawned on me. Well, I committed to that relationship for the rest of my life one day at a time. I had to act one day at a time as though I was going to be in that relationship for the rest of my life. And that was such a valuable, valuable time of growth for me because I got to see my part and I got to see what I need to do to help myself feel comfortable without having that one foot out the door all the time. No matter what's going on in his life, I must act as if I am committed for the rest of my life one day at a time. And I I call it, with the girls I sponsor, I call it being wife material rather than being girlfriend material. Because there's a big difference when you want to be a girlfriend or you want to be the bride or you want to get married and picture yourself in the white dress. Then sitting there cooking dinner every night, cleaning the house, having a smile on your face when he comes in the door, making sure that that person, when they come in the door and they're putting that key in that lock, doesn't feel a sick feeling in their stomach because they're not sure who they're going to see on the other side of that door. Is it going to be Dr. Jekyll or, or Mr. Hyde? Is it going to be, I had a good day, how can I be of service to you, it's good to see you, or is it going to be, I'm going to take out everything bad that happened to me today on you, because this relationship has now become a dumping ground. I didn't know the difference. I didn't know that you can rise in love, not fall in love. I didn't know you could take good actions with people you're actually close to. I thought that was just reserved for company, you know? (laughs) So I learned a lot, and after, at the end of that period of time, I went to Vinoy and I said, you know... I've learned how to make a commitment. Can I stop now? (laughs) And she said, yes. She said, because you learn now that it takes two. The whole time I was blaming him, I couldn't see my part. That relationship ended, and a girl that I sponsored, who I'd sponsored for five years and who was my best friend, uh, had an aneurysm very suddenly at a program bridal shower. And uh, she died. And it was a very, very difficult time for me. And I lost a cat that I was really close to and who I really loved. And it was like grieving the relationship. And then my best friend died. I had never been through a death before, let alone someone who's 23 and is there one second and gone the next second. And and, uh, and then my cat. And uh, I'm a real big animal lover. And I have a lot of animals. And it was just a really hard time. And I was feeling worse and worse and worse. And I was feeling more and more and more depressed. And I was... uh, I was just, I couldn't, I couldn't get out of it. And it seemed like I was praying and I was doing all this stuff and I had some people telling me, you know, it's okay to grieve and I had other people telling me, you know, you've got to get over your feelings and move on and, you know, all of this stuff. And it was just a very, very difficult time. And um, finally one day I was leading a meeting, my home group, and uh, on a Thursday night and this woman came up to me and she said, you know, I never mix my profession with um, the program, but I'm a doctor and you're really sick and you need to go to the doctor tomorrow because um, you're going to die. You're, you're really sick. 
and uh, I went to the endocrinologist the next day. I went to a doctor, and they sent me to an endocrinologist, and he said, you are an advanced case of Graves' disease and hyperthyroidism, and you could drop dead at any moment. You need to go across the street and basically lay down on an operating table right now. And, um, you know, I don't know about you, but when someone tells me I'm going to die, my first thought is, I think it's time to get a second opinion. And um, <laughs> so um, I called this other doctor at UCLA, and he said, get out of that guy's office. He can kill you. If your thyroid is really the way it is, you should not be in surgery right now. It could explode, and you will die. You've got to be treated first, and then you decide what's going to go on. So um, I got my behind to UCLA, and... Um, went on a long series of um, medication to try to stop my thyroid and to shut it down um, for about three and a half to four years until it finally got to the point where I could have surgery. And they told me that it was going to be the most painful thing that I would ever go through. And um, they lied. It was far more painful than the most painful thing I could ever go through. And uh, it really twisted my head. I was talking to somebody the other day who had a heart attack uh, a little while ago, and he wound up having heart surgery. And uh, we were talking about that profound psychological change that you go through when your fight or flight kicks in, that even if you're passed out on an operating table, when your throat is slit or when your chest is opened up, something happens. Something happens. Your human nature kicks in, and you know that just everything is um, altered. And uh, my life got altered by that surgery. And uh, it was a very... Plus, when you're dealing with a thyroid, it's very hormonal. So my emotions were really out there. I gained a lot of weight. I lost a lot of weight. I gained a lot of weight. My hair fell out. I felt ugly. I felt um, unlovable. I certainly felt undateable. And I felt like I gave up the best years of my 30s and um, to this whole thing. And I, and I, was, I was upset about it. And um, it took me a while to, to get through that. But the people in the program loved me no matter what, and they were there for me no matter what. And um, about a year ago, I started to feel like myself again, and, uh, or, or the new self, or whatever you want to call it, uh, maybe a year and a half ago, and I started, you know, walking and doing the things I need to do to take care of myself, and, and I started feeling like, okay, maybe I'm dateable again, and, you know, all of that stuff. And um, so I started, um, you know, looking around and, you know, kind of feeling like, okay, I'm part of the world again. And um, I got to see how that period of time I really evolved into a lady in recovery. That even though I'm don't have, I don't have to be in a relationship to learn how to be in a relationship because it talks about, you know, in the AA 12 and 12 and step one, it talks about how when, when the, the drunks first got together, it was like, well, I don't have a car. Well, I didn't have a car. Well, I don't even have a watch. Well, I don't even have a sock. You know, it was just like everybody had to be really, really bad to admit that they were powerless. And that as the years have gone on and younger people and people who have hit a little less of a low bottom come in, we can learn from other people's experience. We don't have to take it all the way down. We can get off the train anytime we want to. And, um, I got to learn because I watch Susan and Dave and I, I, I look at couples in the program and I learn from their example how to be a lady in recovery and I learn how to treat people and how to involve newcomers in my dating life and how to, I mean, not the ones that I date, but the ones that <laughs> they can come along and, um, you know, taking them to meetings and doing those kinds of things and to really integrate my life to be a whole person in recovery. And that's been a real gift. It's not necessarily a gift for the men that I'm dating because I think they want a little bit more excitement, but I'm really learning how to be a lady in recovery. I'm learning how to be honest. I'm learning how to not give somebody my whole inventory. I'm learning how to teach to treat them with dignity and respect. Um, I'm learning how to um, not be shy about talking about my God, about my spirituality, about my standards, about my morals, and, and, and who I want to be when I grow up. And that feels really good. Um, I feel like I'm skimming over everything, everything as fast as I possibly can because um, this week, two, well, for the last two weeks, it's been an interesting thing. I got to go to the Olympics and, um, a few weeks ago, and I got to meet my family up there. And um, that was a real gift because I wanted to go and I wanted to ski with my parents. And I wanted to ski with my parents because we always skied together when I was a kid. And I know that it means so much to my dad. And that's a gift to this program. Because I didn't, I mean, I love to ski, and that's great and wonderful, but I didn't want to ski with my parents for me. I wanted to ski because I knew it would make my dad happy. 
and I know that he likes to watch me ski, and I know he likes to hang out and go to the, you know, place to eat in the afternoon and eat a piece of pizza and cookie and whatever, and, and, uh, thank you. And it was interesting to see my dad look so old. And my relationship with my family, my, my, my sister, I don't know if she's sober or not, she's in AA. And I know she's not drinking. I don't know if she's on uh, medications or what she's on, but she has not worked the steps. And uh, it, my relationship with my family is better than it's ever been, and it continues to get better. It goes up and down. You know, it goes up and down. My mom still will sometimes resent the program and then not resent the program, resent the program, not resent the program. I had a wonderful conversation with my mom last week where she hung up the phone. She was really resentful and angry and hung up the phone on me, and she called me back in 10 minutes and said, you know, I'd like to talk about our conversation. I don't know what happened there. Do you know? And I was able to share, well, I feel, you know, this way when this happens, or I feel that, and I'm sorry if she said, well, you sounded like you got defensive, and I said, I really apologize. I didn't feel it at all. I felt frustrated, but I didn't feel defensive, and I apologize. And I'm able to talk like that with my family. And even though, you know, I hear a lot of people that they have a whole bunch of family members in recovery and that their family's in recovery. And I'm, I've always looked at that and thought, you know, that's so great. And I wish I could have that. But you know what? As long as there's one family member in recovery, my family is in recovery, whether they drink, whether they go to the program or not. And uh, it was a real gift to be able to be there with my family. And for the first time, when it was time for me to go, I missed them. And uh, one of the things that happened was I was staying in this condo, because this is the way my family does it. They said, do you want to come? And I said, yeah, that would be great. And before I had a chance to do anything, they made all my reservations and all that stuff. My parents were at their condo. My sister was at one hotel, and I was at another. (laughs) That's my family. And um, they think that's normal. And, um, okay, I'm willing to stay anywhere. And, um. I think I was meant to stay at this hotel because I walked into the elevator uh, one day and there was overhead lighting and a mirror on the back wall of this elevator. And I walked in and I saw, I looked at myself in the mirror and I saw a shadow on my neck. And so I felt my neck and I felt a lump. And if I hadn't been in that elevator, I wouldn't have felt that lump. And uh, so I went to the doctor last week as soon as I got home and I made an appointment Hi, Booba. <laughs> uh, I made an appointment, and um, they said, you have to have this biopsy, and they started sticking needles in my neck and all that stuff, and the lady said to me, you've got to hold perfectly still because my throat was starting to, and she said, your throat, if you get upset, is going to start to vibrate, and she said, that's where I'm sticking the needle. You cannot do that because I could damage something. And, you know, the first thing I thought of was I just, I felt like it was in that show, The Chair, you know, Okay, we're going to put you in a chair, and we're going to stick needles in your neck and tell you to keep your heart rate low. (laughs) So, but the first thing I thought of when I was sitting in that chair was, I just went, (sighs) we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore me to sanity. You know, went through each step, and I would get to, like, step three, and I couldn't remember the rest because it was hurting so bad, and I would start again at the beginning. And I just sat there, and I went into that zone of who I am, of what I know, that I do not just act like I'm a member of Al-Anon today. It has become me, and I have become it. And I am an example, for better or for worse, of what you can or don't want to be, depending on any particular action I take at the time. And it was me, and that was so comforting, and I knew that my God was there with me. And um, they got the results back, and they said, so far it looks good. The good news is it's not cancer so far. The bad news is your thyroid is growing back. That's creepy. That's like alien time. And uh, after everything I had been through, I felt real overwhelmed because I thought, I can't go through that five years again. I can't do it. I just can't do it. I know I'm supposed to live one day at a time, but I can't do it. And I'm tired, and I don't want to do it anymore. My life's just starting to get normal. I feel like I can go out there. I feel okay. I can go out in heat, or I can go out in cold and feel like a normal human being. I I don't want to lose my hair again. I don't want to get fat again. I don't want to do all those things again. And I just got out of today, and I was overwhelmed on Thursday, just overwhelmed. And, you know, the only thing that kept me going was knowing that I was going to finally meet Pat, the man whose voice I heard on the phone so many times. 
that I was supposed to be here. Well, I was going to get to whine to a whole new crowd. And then... Because I can complain and complain and complain, and you haven't heard it before. And, um... And, uh... So then I did the MRI, and I was praying in there, boy, saying those steps over and over and over again. And... um and then they told me that they were going to shoot me up with radioactivity and to test it that way, that I have three appointments next week to do that. And um, I have people that have prayed for me. I just went to a big book study last weekend with Benoit and her baby. She was gracious enough to invite me along. We had a, a party and a little skit for a gal who's from Colombia who became a citizen last week. And... Uh, and then we all went around the room and we shared about why we thought she would be a good American. And we had a little skit kind of comparing the, the Pledge of Allegiance to the principles in the program. And the way I ended the skit was talking about that the only difference between the two is instead of injustice for all, thank God that's the only thing that's different than the program because we don't get justice here, we get grace. And when I think about all the things that I did out there and all the ways that I sold myself out because I didn't have the 12 steps and I didn't have the 12 traditions, I didn't know that there was only one authority and it was a loving God. I thought the authority was me or I thought the authority was you and you had the power to run my life. I didn't, I didn't know what it was like to be self-supporting. I didn't know what it was like to uh, work for the group and care about the unity of the whole rather than me, 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 and I want you to love me. I didn't know about the 12 traditions. I didn't have any of that stuff out there. And in spite of all the actions that I took out there, God gave me grace, his free gift, to be here with all of you. And it's just such an overwhelming thing. And at the end of that weekend, you know, I said, oh, I have some announcements, and she were talking about cleaning up the house and all that stuff. And then she said, and now we're going to have a prayer circle. Maria, come here. <laughs> I was like, oh. And she plopped me down in the middle, and everybody held hands. And um, she said, anyone who wants to, just pray. And people just called out their prayers to hold me in God's, under God's cloak and in his light. And, um, you know, regardless of what happens, I know I'm going to be okay. Because I don't have to do anything alone in this program. And if you're new and you're embarrassed to get a sponsor because you don't want to tell them what you've done, if they haven't done it, they wanted to do it. <laughs> And there's nothing you can say that will shock anyone around here. Nothing. You know, oh, I, you know, I know a guy is like, oh, yeah, and I woke up, you know, in my mom's nightgown. It's like, oh, yeah, I did that too. You know, they don't, nobody cares. Get a sponsor. Get to regular meetings. Don't flit around. Get to your regular meetings where people know you, where if you're gone, they will call you and find out where you were. Reach out to those newcomers. Even if you have one meeting more than them, all you have to do is go up and say, yeah, I only have one meeting more than me, but I, but I keep coming back, so something must be working. Whatever it is, stay here. Don't leave. Stay here, and you never, ever have to go through anything alone again, no matter what you've done in the past. We do get grace here from God through all of these wonderful, loving people, and I thank you so much for having me here. Thank you. Thank you.